This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia builds secure networks that keep America strong. That's why 90% of the U.S. depends on Nokia to stay connected. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 17th. In today's news, the Sun Belt was largely spared from the coronavirus in the spring. Now it's getting hit especially hard. An inexpensive steroid is the first drug shown to reduce coronavirus deaths. And some good news for getting kids back to school this fall. But first, the big idea. Three months after President Trump declared a national emergency because of the novel coronavirus, people are asking just like they did in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, whether the government should be dramatically recalibrated around the threat posed by a pandemic. My colleagues Shane Harris and Missy Ryan interviewed 29 current and former U.S. government officials, plus lawmakers and experts, about how the pandemic would and should change things. These officials have served in Republican and Democratic administrations in the White House, the military, the intelligence community, and the State Department. Most of them claim no party affiliation. Their responses showed areas of broad consensus. Nearly to a person, they said the government should not create another big bureaucracy. It took years to fully organize the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11, a department which has since narrowed its focus mainly to immigration and border control, not counterterrorism, Large structural reorganizations would absorb time better spent making existing systems work more effectively. The U.S. did create new programs after 9-11 to defend the country from pandemics. Public health, security, and military officials have responded to less severe outbreaks over the years and simulated pandemics on the scale of the coronavirus. The intelligence community also has been warning for years in classified and public reports that pandemic diseases are at least as serious a security problem for our country as terrorism, cyber attacks, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. None of that seemed to make much of a difference. So unlike 9-11, this time it was not a failure of imagination. Now, many former government officials are pessimistic that the Trump administration would make meaningful changes or learn much from its response, which has been widely criticized as slow and inept. Trump's already all but declared victory and moved on. In fact, Vice President Pence has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today that says, quote, we are winning the fight against the invisible enemy, and quote, there isn't a coronavirus second wave. This is problematic and not really correct for reasons I'll explain in a moment, but thinking bigger here, across the government, key security positions remain vacant or they're filled by acting personnel who many believe are too inexperienced or too afraid to enact meaningful changes. In Congress, the coronavirus has become a kind of national security Rorschach test. By and large, Democrats want to work with our allies to share medical equipment and speed up research and development of treatments and vaccines, while Republicans are more likely to see the pandemic as an alarm bell about the rising power of China, the source of the virus, and they favor actions to blunt the expansion of that country's military. Overall, based on all these 29 interviews, the analysts identify these steps— five steps that we should be taking to save more lives and fend off future economic catastrophe when the next pandemic strikes, and strike it will. Number one, don't reinvent the wheel. The CDC was supposed to be the world's premier epidemiological agency. HHS has pandemic preparedness as part of its core mission, but those organizations responded too late to the coronavirus and were often at odds with each other. That's fixable. 
Current and former officials also fault the Trump administration for dismantling the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense inside the National Security Council and folding it into another entity. That directorate was meant to coordinate the overall response to outbreaks at the behest of the White House. Many argue that it must be restored and strengthened. A White House coordinator would speak for the president and report directly to him or her someday. That way, there is accountability. Number two, treat diseases like hurricanes. In a recent paper, Johns Hopkins scientist Caitlin Rivers and former White House and intelligence official Dylan George make the case for a new epidemic forecasting center. A federally funded body would provide decision makers with real-time information that could save lives and, they say, yield improved forecasting capability over time. They liken the proposal to the establishment in the 20th century of the National Hurricane Center. This new center, likely a government-academic partnership, would help guide decisions on when to reinforce the national strategic stockpile and create extra bed space at hospitals. Number three, change the U.S. relationship with China. Politicians of both parties have faulted Beijing for covering up crucial details about the initial coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan and not allowing U.S. disease experts into the country. China posed a major strategic challenge to us before the pandemic, and this has exacerbated tensions and partisan divisions over what to do. But this crisis also coincides with the Pentagon's strategic race to make good on its long-delayed objective of reorienting from Europe toward Asia, specifically China, which has made big strides in recent decades developing a more powerful advanced military. And the truth is that they've done it in large part by stealing American trade secrets. Now, a lot of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are calling for an acceleration of this military pivot, including expanded basing and troop assignments in Asia. Number four, don't view the military as the panacea for everything. The military made important contributions to the domestic response to this crisis. Personnel embedded in civilian hospitals while the Army Corps of Engineers has overseen construction of field hospitals. Military labs are working overtime to develop treatments and vaccines. Some experts and lawmakers say the military could lend greater or faster logistical support as needed in future outbreaks, but others caution that this limited role should not give way to adding pandemic prevention or response to the Pentagon's core security mission. Our military is still recovering from the strain of two decades of counterinsurgency wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're trying to make changes that defense leaders say are necessary to compete against Russia and China. Number five, accelerate testing, treatment, and vaccines. Experts say the United States needs to dramatically decrease the time it takes to develop and distribute tests, as well as develop treatments and a vaccine for the current pandemic and future pandemics. As Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, the chairman of the Health Committee, puts it, the simplest way to think about this is to see if we can find a way to cut in half or even a third the time it takes to develop these. Alexander says that if the U.S. government invested more money in testing, as well as rapidly developing treatments and vaccines for more viruses on the front end, we wouldn't need to be spending $3 trillion to try to stimulate the economy. We know these viruses are coming. We've known it for years, and we know they will come again. And that's the big idea. Here are three other corona headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the latest numbers show that the Sun Belt is getting pounded. Among the states reporting record single-day highs for new cases yesterday were Florida with 2,800 new cases, Texas with 2,600, and Arizona with 2,400. New single-day highs were also reported in Nevada, 379 cases, Oklahoma, 228 cases, Oregon, 278 
and South Carolina, 612. Two southern states set records for seven-day new case averages yesterday as well. North Carolina's seven-day rolling average hit a new high for the 15th day in a row. And Alabama's seven-day average reached a new high for the seventh time in 15 days. Now, Trump is still planning to go to Oklahoma on Saturday for his first big rally since the country went into quarantine. A judge denied an effort last night by Tulsa residents to block the president from holding an indoor campaign rally in their city on Saturday. They said it was a danger to public health. The city's Republican mayor says he will not use his emergency powers to block Trump from holding his rally, despite what he says are his apprehensions about the event. But he also said that he will definitely not attend, nor will any members of his family. Tony Fauci, our country's top infectious disease expert, said he would advise people not to go to the Trump rally. He added that outside events are much safer than inside ones like the one Trump is holding. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi is asking House committees today to require masks during all hearings, and she's authorized the sergeant-at-arms to bar any lawmaker who refuses to cover their face from going into committee hearing rooms or coming onto the floor of the chamber. This will set up a clash with a few GOP holdouts who refuse to wear the face coverings. Number two, new trial testing shows an inexpensive steroid called dexamethasone is the first drug proven to reduce coronavirus deaths. The 60-year-old drug is the first medication shown to increase people's chances of surviving COVID-19. It reduced the risk of death for patients on ventilators by a third and cut the risk of death for patients on oxygen by a fifth. This is heartening news, and it's drawing widespread interest in hope. Carla Adam, Letitia Beecham, and Carolyn Johnson report that British regulators speedily approved the drug for use in hospitalized patients requiring oxygen. Dexamethasone is a workhorse steroid. It's typically used to treat inflammation, including flare-ups of rheumatoid arthritis. It's been given as a tablet, a liquid, or as an intravenous preparation throughout this trial. Some other steroids are also still being tested against COVID. Outside physicians tempered their optimism about the news with urgent calls to release details of the researchers' findings so that doctors on the front lines could pore over the numbers and understand the benefits and the limitations of the steroid. Here on this side of the pond... A South Dakota company has announced that it expects to start human trials next month for a COVID-19 antibody treatment derived from, get this, the plasma of special cows that have been genetically engineered to have an immune system that is part human. You can't make this stuff up. Meanwhile, the state of Arkansas filed a lawsuit today against televangelist Jim Baker for deceptively promoting collodial silver as a coronavirus cure, following a similar lawsuit in Missouri and warnings from two federal agencies. Arkansas's attorney general says at least 385 residents in his state spent more than 60000 bucks on what's essentially snake oil. Number three, another big study out yesterday shows that children and teens are only half as likely to get infected with the coronavirus as adults aged 20 and older. Best of all, they usually, usually do not develop any clinical symptoms of COVID. These findings are going to be very influential for policymakers who are facing tough calls about when and how to reopen schools and daycare centers. It makes it a little more palatable to bring kids back, although they still can potentially be asymptomatic carriers. There are also concerns about Kawasaki disease. But the study has implications as well for the likely disease burden in countries with much younger populations, many of which are in the developing world, particularly Africa. Most of the countries that have been hit hardest by the contagion have had relatively older populations. Finally, this last story I'm going to wrap up with 
today is a little gross, to be honest, maybe a lot gross. But I'm going to share it with you anyway, because it just might save you or your loved ones from contracting the virus. And that's what's most important to me. Scientists who simulated toilet water and airflows say in a new research paper that aerosol droplets forced upward by a flush of the toilet appear to spread wide enough and linger long enough in the air to be inhaled. My colleagues Karen Brouillard and William Wan report that the coronavirus has been found in the feces of COVID patients. Now, it still remains unknown whether such clouds could contain enough virus to infect a person. But the authors of multiple studies say the possibility of that mode of transmission calls for action amid the pandemic. First and foremost, by closing the lid of the toilet when you flush. Toilets and modern sanitation systems have been a huge boon to public health and life expectancy since the 19th century. Even so, people have long been leery of germs in bathrooms, and that wariness has only increased during the pandemic. But experts say that most of us are focusing on the wrong thing. For all of our paranoia about the surface of toilet seats, the tissue paper that we oh so carefully lay down, the thin covers often offered in public stalls, germ transmission from skin contact is a relatively small health risk compared with what happens after you flush. That's when bits of fecal matter swish around so violently that they're propelled into the air, become aerosolized, and then settle on the surroundings. Experts have a term for it. They call it the toilet plume. Charles Gerba, a microbiologist at the University of Arizona, says that some public toilets don't have a lid. When you use them, he recommends that you, quote, flush and run. Also, wash your hands well post-flush and use hand sanitizer after leaving the restroom. Choose well-ventilated bathrooms if possible and don't hang around the restroom in any case. In your bathroom at home, if you have a toothbrush that's anywhere near your toilet, move it. You don't want to brush your teeth with what's been in your toilet. But most important, even at home, close the lid before you flush. And that's all I've got. (laughs) That's the Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Don't forget to close the lid before you flush. I'll talk to you tomorrow.